Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the uh, Natural Health. Hey, yes, sorry. The Ankylosing Spondylitis Natural Health Podcast. I forgot the name of my own podcast. Anyway, my name's Michael Eisner, and it's a pleasure to have Elaine Jeffy with us today. She was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. She's originally from Los Angeles, California, and lived there till she was 25. Her father, a physician, her mother, a stay-at-home mom. She began to study the flute at age eight, played professionally a great deal, putting much pressure on herself. And then she also had a large number of students until she was in her early 40s. She graduated from UCLA with a degree in music. She married young, had three children, all the while practicing and performing. Moved to Colorado, Arkansas, Texas before settling in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> Um, after that, she worked as a volunteer director for a large hospice company. She's a certified life coach, certified whole health, health medicine institute coach, and certified mind-body coach. She healed herself and is now um, guiding others how to do the same. Elaine, thanks very much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. So you're in you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't even know, I don't even know where that is. It's just a, a Texas. Okay. Yes, we border Texas, but I'm in the northeast part of the state. You might have heard of the show Oklahoma. I have some years ago. Yes, so that's where I am. Okay. Cool. Great. Well, um, it's a pleasure to have you here. I mean, especially someone who has so much experience around all of this. So, I mean, folks, she, she didn't, she didn't, wasn't diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, but it's all the same thing, different symptoms. And I think a similar cause, and we've been talking a lot and, or, you know, emailing back and forth and it's, it's all the same. It's the same thing. So, um, let's dive right in and begin at when your symptoms began, like how old were you? And it can be, a sh it doesn't have to be a long answer, but. Well, it's interesting, but I'm completely sure that my symptoms began at the age of five. I did a workbook um, by Dr. Howard Schubner called Unlearn Your Pain. And that was about seven years ago. Well, he has you do a chronology of your pain. And I'm just looking at the workbook. And what age did your symptoms start? And I just write down without even thinking, five. And up until that moment, I hadn't completely known that. I knew they were always there. And it's so fascinating how the whole process of following that workbook and so forth brought so much insight and meaning to me that I'd like to just say to start off that whatever journey we are on, it's kind of a wonderful path because there are so many, so much, so many gifts 
And I'll use this opportunity to mention my voice the way it sounds, because that's my latest, quote, gift. In spite of the fact that I no longer have the painful symptoms I'd had for many decades, I developed a new one fairly recently, and I'm totally fine. I'm not sick today, but my vocal cords are compromised. So the listeners can just know that up front. Thank you for mentioning that. I, I appreciate that very much. What, um, what was it when you were five? Like, what were the symptoms that you began to feel? Um, excruciating ankle and lower leg pain up through my knees. And there's a fascinating story to that that I rarely share because I wasn't aware of it consciously until I was into my 60s. So if you'd like me to share it, I can, or we can see if it comes up. Let's go into it. Let's drop right into it. Okay. (laughs) Well, my dad was a physician, and my ankles would be very swollen, and they, they hurt a lot. But, of course, I didn't let that stop me as a kid. I kept doing everything. But he, quote, checked it out. I mean, it was a kid, and it was a long time ago. So I don't know what kind of testing was available. But at any rate, he said I was fine. And some people will say it's, quote, growing pains. Well, who knows what it was, but it hung around forever. But when I was about 60, My mother was talking to me. She's no longer alive. And she mentioned that my sister, who was born when I was five, my sister's birth was very traumatic. She weighed one pound, 10 ounces, and she was a six-month baby. She was born at the gestational period, six months. Well, needless to say, she was in an incubator for three months, and our whole family was never the same, even though my sister's alive and well today. So all those years later, my mother's talking to me, and she says, well, you know, the reason I went into labor was so early was because I was reading you a story. You were sitting on my lap, and you were kicking because you were excited, and you kicked me. Well, I kicked her. Okay, I don't believe that for a moment. It it couldn't have caused the premature labor, but I didn't. I didn't even pay attention to her telling me until I started the process of healing. And I learned about things like the inner child and trauma and adverse childhood experiences. And I realized 
that there had always been something that was disconnecting me from my mom and dad, that there was some wall there. And I always knew that. Well, trust me, it took a few more years. And when I was in life coach school, my partner was doing a visualization with me about the inner child. And she asked me, you know, what do I look like? How old am I? And I just, I'm speaking from a very uh, kind of, uh, you could call it a right brain state, even though the right and left stuff is kind of passe now. But we'll just use that to explain more from a nonverbal thinking place. It's just coming to me. And I see myself, and she asks me questions, and I talk about what I'm wearing. And then I say, wow, it's really weird. My legs are huge, and they're wooden, and they're sticking out like this, and they're wooden. I didn't think a thing of it. She goes on, and we finish the session, and maybe a week later, I'm folding laundry, and I realize they're wooden, so I can't kick. They're wooden, so I can't kick anyone, and you know, ruin an entire family, so to speak. You know, in retrospect, of course, it, it just hit like a ton of bricks, and. I think it was because I was doing the unlearn your pain process too that takes you into the subconscious in a very artful way. So after that, it's like the floodgates open. And that was years ago now. And since then, I keep getting more, so to speak, downloads about how everything that happens to us, much of which we will never recall consciously, is still driving us, driving our bodies, our minds, driving everything. But we've got control in spite of that because the awareness of it was a gift. So, and I recovered from all of that physical pain. So that's the story. Wow. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And so, I wasn't trying to dig up anything. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. No. Not at all. I'm, I, I want to talk about um, this awareness that, that, you're, that you're talking about and how that led to healing is... Is that right? That's a big part of it. Big part of it. Well, we'll get into it later on, I'm sure. Okay. Thank you for that story. That It uh, brought up a lot for me. Um, so thank you for being open about that. I really appreciate it. Um, 
what um, throughout the years before you were diagnosed, like just listing them off, what were some of your generic symptoms? Okay, as a child, there was a lot of leg pain, but there were also chronic throat infections, which is fascinating given the symptom I have now. I had the throat infections until I was about 30, and I would get very sick and I couldn't swallow. It was tonsillitis. I couldn't swallow. I could barely talk. And I know you're familiar with the work of Steve Ozanich. Well, he talks about throat infections. You may remember that. Right. How the throat, it was whatever was going on with the throat came before the infection. And the throat is the seat of expression. So... I'd say four times a year at least. I was very sick. My dad gave me so much penicillin for, I don't know, two decades maybe that I became immune to it. And, you know, there was no awareness that it could be psychosomatic or whatever you want to call it, a mind-body syndrome. Of course, it was totally real. They cultured my throat, Um, but that was one. And then there were just a lot of transient aches and pains that most serious musicians experience because there's so much um, strain and intensity with performing and practicing. And my personality was very intense. So I pushed and pushed and pushed. And I was part of a peer group by the time I was about 12. And we all pushed and pushed and pushed. Most of the people from my peer group went on to become extremely well-known musicians, classical musicians. And I was very fortunate to have the fun of all of that, but it generated a lot of upper body symptoms. Mm. So as the years passed, I got, quote, diagnosed with, um, let's see, you know, tendonitis, um, thoracic outlet syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome, trigger finger, tennis elbow. I mean, there's just anything that could happen in the upper body and the shoulders and the hands. So my hands, and these are also many of them symptoms of psoriatic arthritis, the swelling in the ankles that I had when I was five. Well, I don't know what I quote had, but I had swollen ankles. So then my hands would swell. It became very difficult to play. And my dad kind of poo-pooed my symptoms. And that was another source of 
rage for me. So ultimately, I left home by the time I was 18. So I, I didn't ask him about my symptoms anymore. And I chose not to share because it was too dismissive feeling. And most of that time, I just did everything and it just hurt all the time. Mm. I didn't investigate it until I was in my 30s and the doctors would give me a lot of anti-inflammatories and ultimately they told me to go to a rheumatologist. I went to a hand surgeon and he did some tests and he said, there's a marker in your blood work. You need to go to a rheumatologist. So I did and she diagnosed me with psoriatic arthritis because I had had psoriasis previously. And I probably had whatever it was for a long time, of course. Mm -hmm. But back then, this was, I think, in 1987. Okay. So there were no biologics. There were... NSAIDs, of course, really strong anti-inflammatories. And I tried the prescription ones, but my stomach rebelled. Those were just too strong for me. I didn't want the injection she offered. You know, she knew I made my living doing that, but that's why by the time I was in my early 40s, I was not making a living on the flute anymore. Because of symptoms? Yes, because of symptoms. Okay, so... Yeah, so that's important. But another thing, and tell me if I'm getting off track, because I can rein in if you need me to. But I think there's something important here that hopefully would help Others, the rheumatologist told me about my condition, and she said, well, you could continue like this for a decade or more, and she said, and then one day, you just probably won't be able to get out of bed. Well, I never went back to her after that. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Because I'd had so much pain all those years, and I still was living a totally normal life on the outside. Anyway, I kind of dismissed the diagnosis. I didn't dismiss it in a way, oh, I don't believe it. No, I just let it and it was there's no googling I, that's, that saved my life that saved my life Google. it was yeah, yeah that I couldn't google yeah. because I couldn't obsess about my condition and I looked around me at my colleagues other performers and musicians 
many of whom had chronic symptoms, but many didn't. And I kept wondering about that. And I came to the conclusion all those years ago that my personality, my intensity, my drive, my obsession with the whole thing caused a lot of my symptoms. And I'm sure of that. I'm sure of it. Mm. And yet I didn't know what to do about that. Right. So I think somehow I had that much awareness. So what happened was little by little, I performed less and less. I got a job I loved, another job, and the world started to change. And all my upper body symptoms took about probably two years. They got much less. Mm. But all the lower body ones got much worse. Oh, wow. Does that tell us? That tells us what Dr. Sarno calls the symptom imperative. The symptom what, sorry? Imperative. You know, when something's imperative, it means it has to be. Like, it's imperative that you drink six glasses of water a day. So there's this, what he calls the symptom imperative means that the mind-body system needs to create more symptoms to keep us distracted and also to keep, well, it's keeping us distracted from what the unconscious is protecting us from, Mm -hmm. from the rage, the inner rage. Now, I don't want to use Dr. Sarno as the barometer for psoriatic arthritis. But what he has to say, or ankylosing spondylitis, they are cousins. They're sisters, so to speak, maybe closer than cousins. And there are commonalities, although not always. And I don't choose to go into them now. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful to the listeners to know that, but what, quote, causes an autoimmune condition, that's real hard for anyone to say for sure. But we certainly know that dysregulation of the nervous system which most of us are not regulated these days, mm. um, plays a huge role in that. So, um, so back to all the other symptoms. So I developed just, you know, excruciating back pain, and I'd had back pain already, but this was much more severe. The leg pain, the sciatic pain, the butt pain, um, the foot pain, Pretty much everything, it took kind of took turns, or sometimes it was all there at the same time. And yeah. it, it became debilitating 
after a couple of decades of that. Hmm. Wow. And um, so that probably uh, did you ever did you ever try any different diets or did you get into before you found Sarno? Like, was there any dieting that you'd go through or any other kind of holistic, natural healing that you tried besides Western medicine? Not a lot. However, nutrition had been an obsession of my father's. So I was somewhat obsessed with nutrition. I tried to be moderate, but I was always very aware of it. But I didn't, again, this was before the internet. You know, when I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, very few people had the internet in 1987. Yeah. You know, unless you worked somewhere where you had access, and it wasn't that good then. So, yes, I paid attention to, I read some books, um, but I felt I didn't somehow, I think I was so busy and so driven in my personal and professional life that I was aware that nutrition had an impact but I didn't look at it as the critical variable. Yes. No, right. I just, I just didn't. I that makes sense. That makes yeah, perfect sense. Um, so I guess this now I get I think we're kind of at how how bad things got for you. You told me a story about the pier in um, Santa Monica Pier and and how that kind of how Sarno came into your world closely after that. So if you'd like to go into that. Well, I'd like to back it up okay. drop because things, and I didn't share with you all the jobs I've had, but it, my favorite was the hospice job because I learned so much about grief. I taught classes in grief and all kinds of other areas that would lead me to the holistic path because that's what hospice is. It's all about, you know, it's a program for people who are in the final stages of life. So if someone is a hospice patient, they're, expect, they're not expected to recover and they're expected to, they're, it's the final stage of their life, and many people die shortly after they're admitted to the program, but many live for years. But during that time, the patient does not receive any aggressive treatment for the terminal condition. Mm. But what they do receive is Everything holistic, everything, massage, art therapy, music therapy, social work. Um, it's, it's a holistic 
program, and it's delivered by a team of practitioners. So that changed my life a lot. It's based actually on Buddhist philosophy that the moment is all we have and that each moment is like a little life. Every moment is a life. So that it's not about how long we live, it's about how we are. We're with life. We're not managing life. We're not controlling life. We're being with life and accepting it. And that changed my life because I couldn't cry until I was a hospice worker, so to speak, and then the floodgates, oh my gosh. And that's very therapeutic. I held it all in. So that was, I think, a very big step. But I was in a lot of discomfort. Yeah, I could barely hold the computer mouse. I could, you know. But at any rate, okay, so. What, um, can we just, I'm just curious. What, what was it that led you to that release? You said uh, someone in the hospice said something and the floodgates opened. What was that? It was just, it, it was about confronting our mortality and living with all these patients that all there is when you're a hospice patient is the moment. And so that takes you right into the mindfulness, ancient philosophy, um, all of that opens something in me not as much as it needed to be opened, but we welcomed tears. We actually trained our volunteers that crying was a gift, that that was kind of a cleansing, kind of a, that we are meant to cry, you know, and that we're meant to experience life and not to keep fighting it. But of course, what we hear from people who aren't in a hospice setting is he's fighting cancer, he's battling psoriatic arthritis, she's fighting this, fighting that. I'm not going to say, I don't want to criticize people who find that helpful. If they do, they do. But I found the opposite approach, that you end that war within, and you don't keep trying to manage everything, and you look at the reality of what's happening, which is, I'm alive right now, the sun is shining, I'm taking a sip of my favorite lemonade or whatever it might be, and to just land on that, because we have some of that almost every moment of the day that we don't pay attention. When I say that, 
the small, beautiful gifts that lie everywhere. They're just there. And we're too busy beating ourselves up, managing our lives, trying to be better, um, that we miss out. So that's what I learned. I learned to, wow. to yeah, but, but trust me, I didn't learn it enough <laughs> because I was still suffering. So ultimately, um, I actually didn't tell you this, but when I was 53, I got divorced, I quit my hospice job, I sold everything I owned, and I moved to South America. Oh my gosh. I was in a lot of pain, but I had a wonderful time. I didn't stay there a long time, partly because of the pain, because I wouldn't drive there. I mean, it was, oh, it's crazy. It's such a different culture. But, um, it was an adventure, and I wanted an adventure. My kids were grown, and I wanted an adventure. And so when I came back, I went back to school, and I became a, a certified Spanish teacher. So I started teaching middle school Spanish in my late 50s, and that was all wrong for me. And see, I was still doing things that were way wrong for me. It was fun, but it, it, it didn't go with the pain syndrome. And it was, I don't know what education's like in Canada, but I realized that I thought our educational system, <laughs> I always thought it sucked, and I still <laughs> And it was about glorified babysitting, and yeah. there was a lot of bullying, and the pain got so intense that I did finally share it with my primary care physician. I never shared it. I just had it. I just, I thought that's just the way it is. But when I finally told him that pain was, quote, ruling my life, that's when all the tests started, the MRIs and everything. So in addition to psoriatic arthritis, there's, you know, there's this study that shows that I have um, severe spinal stenosis, um, scoliosis, herniations, bulging discs, um, you name it, all the back stuff. Right. And I think, oh, you know, whatever. So he sends me to a neurosurgeon. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I tell the guy, uh, I'm not starting with surgery, you know. He says, okay, we'll do physical therapy. Well, that was disastrous. I mean, it just, everything got worse. Everything just kept getting worse because I could see that MRI in my mind's eye. And it looked like I was broken. It literally looked so awful. And now I understand that means nothing. I could have had an MRI like that and felt perfectly comfortable. Right. But ultimately, it led me to the back surgery, the laminectomy, which I was told 
that the laminectomy would, there was a 95% chance I would no longer have sciatica because it would take care of all the <coughs> severe stenosis that was pinching the nerves and blah, blah, blah. So this is leading up to Santa Monica Pier. That's why. Okay. It's great. It's all relevant. Thank okay. You. So I have the back surgery, and I'm very optimistic. But after two months, I'm not better. And what's fascinating is the neurosurgeon had said, he said like this, I can't help you with your back pain because your arthritis is so severe. I can help you with your sciatica, which is that shooting, burning, horrible pain that goes up and down the leg and into the buttocks. It's kind of like there's a jackhammer that's got flames on it in your buttocks, and then there's the flaming and whatever going down your legs and your the numbness and all that stuff. Okay, that was supposed to improve, but not the back pain. Well, the sciatica seemed worse, but the back pain actually seemed better. Oh, my God. It's interesting. Now I have neither one. Neither one. But well, that's, do, do you think that's because of the surgery, or is it because of the work that's coming up? No, no. That you did? A year after the surgery is when I took the trip with my husband back to Southern California to be with family. It was a traumatically difficult time, but there's a, a beautiful pier there. I think you lived in LA, so you might know that. I pier. did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, I wanted to go to Santa Monica Pier because it was part of my childhood and young adulthood, of course. And I had taken my own kids there when they were little. So I had to use an elevator and I had my cane. And I'm standing there and it's the worst I'd ever felt. It's a year later after the supposedly successful surgery. Mm. And I knew as soon as I got home, I was going to to find something. I, I wasn't, this wasn't the way it was going to be. I just, I, I remember getting back in the car. It was a gorgeous day and all these people were having so much fun out on the pier and my husband took some photos of me. And if I look at them today, I looked so strained. I looked kind of ashen. It was, it was the juxtaposition of the beautiful day and that pain that as soon as I got home, I don't know, I just kept Googling. And here's where Googling saved me. That's when I found Dr. Sarno. So I got the books and I read Healing Back Pain and the Mind-Body Prescription first. By the time I finished those two books, I already felt completely different because I wasn't afraid. Mm. I still had my symptoms, 
But I was already different because I saw myself, I saw the personality type. And he does talk about psoriatic arthritis, and I believe AS, in the mind-body prescription. Mm. He talks about every conceivable diagnosis almost, and how the mind-body approach to healing impacts the diagnosis. So I was just on my way. I just never looked back. I read The Divided Mind. I started to find the other physicians who had been disciples of Dr. Sarno. And I'd say within two or three months, I was signed up to take a life coach course because I had seen in the back of the book, Unlearn Your Pain, there was a list of resources. And there was a list of mind-body coaches. It was like three people at the time, right. 10 editions that book. So I Googled them, and I found out that they had become certified life coaches first. So even though I was about, I'd say, 60% better by then, about 60% after maybe four months, I knew that this is what I wanted to do with my life, even though I was, you know, over 60 years old. So I did it. And doing all of that training, which I have about at least three or four years of training, well, it helped heal me. Of course, because everything, like I told you about the exercise with the inner child, I was in, I was on the path. So everything I absorbed was my teacher, was my guide. And we examined every area of our lives, not just our bodies not our symptoms, and, and I, this is, I'm talking about life coach training now, but it was very mind-body focused, but the mind-body specialization, every person who becomes a mind-body coach that I know of, and I know about 100 people, um, we all suffer with all kinds of diagnoses and symptoms and that's why we do what we do so yeah yeah wow <laughs> oh my gosh okay um what so you read you read the mind body prescription you read uh healing back pain and then you just continued to read 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 for about four oh. months 60% better, and then you immediately jumped into the life coaching. Yeah. And, and slowly, how long did it take for, would you say, for your symptoms to just drop, right? Like, where do you think they got to? Like uh, 10%, 5%? For a while, they were probably at about 3%. Yeah. It took a year 
about a year, there were certain triggers to my symptoms that through my training, I learned how to mediate triggers. Walking was a trigger. At first, standing was a trigger. I couldn't stand like I did all my cooking, practically sitting down, like all my chopping or whatever. I, I couldn't stand for more than five minutes without excruciating pain. But through the process, the standing became okay. And then the walking was the longest holdout, so to speak. I mean walking a distance, like at least a mile, without having a lot of problems. That was that took at least two years, okay. maybe more. And now I'm not going to tell you I walk for eight or nine miles. I can walk for like three miles, and sometimes I'll still notice I, I have to do my deep triggering mantra kind of mm. to unwire that it's a wiring issue all of these issues become central nervous system and brain issues as I'm sure a lot of people have spoken about um, and so we can consciously unwire, rewire, whatever, except the wiring doesn't go away. You just have new wiring. So if something triggers it, like the thing that triggered my, my voice, hmm. that was uh, an emotional thing about a long-standing emotional issue that was pretty unconscious that um, now it's become mostly conscious so I can see how it drives things that I do and so forth but yeah so it took about a year I know that was a long answer what I definitely want to talk about this recent experience with your voice and what triggered it but first um to pass on what you can to anyone listening during that year for yourself, what were the lessons you feel you had to learn or unlearn? What did you have? What What was it that was? What was the message? The message that was trying to get across to you? What was What was there for you to learn from this pain that you discovered in that year? Probably the biggest thing was learning about self-compassion and self-acceptance and allowing what was within me to be instead of avoiding, so to speak, uh, like anxiety during all this of course I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder <laughs> of course and, and I was on medicine for it and that was the first medicine that I completely went off of 
because after reading Sarno's books, and I read, you know, dozens more, but I wasn't anxious because I wasn't broken. I was never broken, and it was all there, hard as it is for us to swallow this. I believe it was all there to help me. My body just wanted my attention all along, and I just pushed it away. I pushed, I pushed, I pushed. You know, I, I didn't get enough sleep. I did have good nutrition, but I, I put everybody first. I know you hear this from most of the people. No, we got to hear it again. We got to hear it again. <laughs> we, I've got to hear it again. Me too. <laughs> I need my fix, like every day since. Since I found Dr. Sarno, I make sure I at least read one article, listen to podcasts such as yours. Um, I do something every day to keep reinforcing that I am worthy just as I am. I don't need to earn my self-love or anyone else's, of course kindness is important, but kindness to myself comes first. And that's not easy for us in the societies that we live in. It's, it's all around us to try harder, to be better, to push, push, push. And yet, success and creativity are fostered by a nervous system and a mind-body system that are in balance. And most of us, including me, right at the moment because of the voice, are not in balance. Worse, I think I wrote it somewhere, we're saying yes when we mean no. We have unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others, our colleagues, our families. We, we won't stop trying to manage our lives. when, And then we miss out on living them. So it's, it's a lesson that I still need to remind myself of, you know, that, oh, I should stay up and work harder, or I should mm. never, when in reality, I'll write a better article or be a better support to a client of mine if I'm rested, if I'm relaxed, mm. if I'm open to the experience at hand. So during the months, because I do remember the original question, during the months between when I started life coach training and I started all the reading, I also, I did start a meditation practice, which I love. I had been doing yoga for a little while when the pain got very bad, they told me to stop yoga, and I listened 
that was a mistake. Mm. So I went back to yoga, which I do every single day. I kept exercising. I I did what felt right for me. Now, if I have a client who will just say, well, I'm not going to meditate, well, that's fine because guess what? You can meditate when you don't know you're meditating. So <laughs> if you set aside time to, you know, take your glass of, like I said before, this is just water, but maybe lemonade or if you just sit and notice it and pay attention to how it tastes or look out the window and pay attention to what you see and hear, you're in a meditative state and you're present. So anyone can meditate. And if you do it two or three minutes, two or three times a day, it will transform things. Mm-hmm. It will slowly change us. So, I don't ever tell anybody what to do other than be kind to yourself and practice loving kindness to yourself first. So, that's maybe the answer to what you asked. Yes, I think I think that covered quite a lot of it. Um, you... Uh, there was a quote that I picked out from your website. I thought maybe I'd say it and see if that led us someplace. Chronic symptoms are a signal that something within you is screaming for your attention. Every thought and emotion you have generates a response in your body. Absolutely. And I'm glad you reiterated that because I don't think we've said enough about that today. We are so trained to repress and suppress any kind of emotional discomfort that ultimately that's when the body starts screaming. When we don't honor plain and simple sadness We label it depression. Sadness isn't depression. Sadness is alive. Sadness is like grief. It's it's a beautiful emotion that we're meant to feel. Anger, the same. We're meant to feel it. I don't mean to scream at other people. I mean to feel that fiery feeling and this isn't the right time to go into a course on emotions, but we can learn to befriend everything we were trained to push away. And when we do that, the symptoms don't have a reason to exist, usually. Mm. I found myself suppressing a lot of rage and sadness with all the mass shootings in the United States in 2018 two months ago I think I looked it up there had been almost 400 
or was it 300, mass shootings, which means a shooting in which four or more people were victimized. I could not believe it, but I found myself, it was so painful to even face what had happened here and what was continuing to happen that I got a lot of symptoms back, Michael. It was quite an education for me. I told myself, okay, Elaine, you're going to sit with this. You're going to let whatever comes up be there. And I tried to do all kinds of tricks I know to let the emotional energy come. And I was blocked. Hmm. And I didn't, I haven't had any sciatic pain for a long time. And I got some of that in the piriformis, the buttock area. I got quite a bit of back pain. It was transient, but I'd have it on and off throughout the day until one day, and that was for about two weeks, one day, I'm driving my car. And I realize I've got to get home because it's coming. The emotion, I, I can feel it coming. I either have to pull over or I'm going to come home. So I come home and I'm just standing at my kitchen counter and I can't even explain what it felt like. It felt like I was going to break. But it doesn't last long when you really let that <laughs> emotional pain come. Usually it doesn't last more than about 90 seconds. Mm. And it, it was probably two or three minutes. And I was kind of afraid. It was so huge. It was a wave. And it was huge. But I knew it was it needed to be. And it did, because since then I haven't had those symptoms. It, it's, I've been holding it away. I've been avoiding it for, you know, however long it was since the last big shooting. And, yeah, because I'm shaking just talking about it. But it needed to happen. So I've had clients tell me things like, oh, if they feel an emotion, they'll fall into a black hole. Hmm. In other words, something in us learned how to avoid uncomfortable emotions, probably in our infancy and toddlerhood because we couldn't verbalize how we felt. And our parents, in their well-meaningness, they taught us to only feel good, to only, you know, they would distract us. One of my favorite authors who writes about emotions calls it, that we take Mr. Bunny, like we take a stuffed animal, and we try to make our child stop crying or whatever it is. But 
Sure, if there's a reason for the crime. I understand we want to comfort our children. We don't just want to let them cry. But there's a difference. If there's a reason, I don't know how to explain this very well, but when we aren't honored for who we are, we just keep stuffing it. And there's stuff you can find online about this You can see six-month-old babies and their reactions. It's called the still face experiment. I think you can Google it. You see the reaction of the infant to the parent who starts to turn their face away from the baby. They stop smiling at the baby when the baby's smiling at them. And you see the baby get into just this massive confusion and misery. But what I'm trying to say is that earliest relationship, even if it wasn't abusive, even if it wasn't neglect, it still taught most of us, not all of us, but most of us to suck it up, suck it up. And the body knows and it won't put up with it. And I think that's a lot of why we have so much chronic illness. Wow. Wow. I learned so much there. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's there, i got to tell you. Yeah. And I'll be happy to share resources at some point, but it's out there big time now. It's my favorite thing to learn about. Mm. Type of um, work. It's it's becoming more and more prevalent that um, the chronic illnesses that we develop after the age of fifty, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, um, have their roots in early childhood because we're dysregulated from a very early age. Wow. And can you, can you describe and expand on what you mean by dysregulated? Yes. That's when the nervous system is in a fight, flight, or freeze response most of the time. Put it this way. Those responses can save our lives. We're meant to experience fight, flight, and freeze, but probably we're meant to experience it maybe a couple times a week. Right. Most people are in a variety of one of those responses more than 50% of their lives, even when they're sleeping. Yeah. So, um, That's what dysregulation is. Even if our parents did everything, quote, right, if they weren't regulated, if they had a lot of emotional angst or whatever, and we're all only human, I'm not blaming anyone, but we didn't pick up on what a regulated nervous system is. You know, if we weren't cuddled or, you know, just all, it's all 
connected. And I don't want to blame anyone, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, we just need to have compassion about it and realize that we have so much power to help ourselves. We, it's just waiting for us. That's what your key to healing my business, I named it that. The key just means the key's right in your pocket. It's there all the time, or it's just right inside you because we evolved to heal. You know, a cut heals most things. You know, most of us have plenty of cancer cells, but the killer cells are, you know, they're taking care of those cancer cells. Um, The immune system ideally is doing its job, but unfortunately, and I'm a walking proof that it doesn't always do its job. And right. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I wrote down another uh, quote. Maybe let's see what it unsurfaces. Maybe okay. we've already talked about it. We'll see. You can unlearn your pain by becoming aware of the connection between your thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations. Yes. It's... Um that's where the huge awareness piece comes in. And this is a whole other thing, Michael. Um, And I I don't have time, and I don't think we do. Every thought that we have is not true. The brain creates thoughts based on all kinds of of input that it gets, but there are so many thoughts that come from the part of the brain that's just designed to help us survive, the primitive part of the brain. And I'm sure you've heard this quite a bit because it's, again, it's, you just listen to somebody like, Tony Robbins, and they'll just tell you, the brain isn't meant to keep you happy. The brain is meant to keep you alive. So what's happened is we don't live in a world of physical threats anymore. There are some, of course, but we don't need to worry about wild animals pouncing on us and so forth. But if someone gives us, put it this way, One day, my boss, this was in one of my jobs, I had made some proposals to my boss about some things that I didn't know if he would like, and I knew he was evaluating them. So a couple days later, I see him in the hall, and I smile, you know, hi, I smile. He doesn't look at me. He walks right past me. Well, he he was the kind of guy, if he had something on his mind, he wasn't going to smile at you. Well, what do you think my mind did? Oh, no, he's going to fire me. He's going to this. He's going to that. I I will tell you, he calls me about, he buzzes me about an hour or two later. 
can I come in and talk to him in his office? Right. I, I just, again, that's the, the primitive brain. Oh, no, this is it. This is it. This is it. Okay. If he had said, I want you to come and see me in my office tomorrow, I probably wouldn't have slept all night. But luckily, it was right then. I go in, and you know what he does? He loved my proposals, and he's going to give me a raise. (laughs) Okay. So that's what I'm trying to say about the thoughts. What we learn is how those kinds of um, uh, lack and attack, um, survival-type thoughts, oh, no, what am I going to do? We don't, or limiting beliefs, like I had one about my husband that was like, I can't count on him to support me when the chips are down because of the few things that have happened. Well, I made a whole story out of it, but because I'm a life coach, I knew what to do about the story. So I question that story about how true it really is, and there's a whole process for doing that. Well, all we need to do for our purposes here is realize that so much of our mind activity and our thoughts are completely redundant, they're useless, they're based on old, unconscious, what people used to call tapes, recordings. They're they're just made to help us survive, and they keep us in the stress response because we see them as true. We don't need to stop thinking them. We can't, because the minute you try to stop thinking something, you'll think it. Ten times more. That's a fact. What you do with the thought is you just notice it, and then you can ask yourself certain questions about it. And believe me, it will calm the nervous system. It'll start to rewire a lot of those crazy beliefs that we all walk around with, you know, these stories that we make up about ourselves. You know, I here's one. I tell myself, I suck at technology. (laughs) Well, that's not really true at all. And I know it's not, but I'll still think. But I'll just notice, oh, there it goes again. Because when I knew we were going to Skype, and I hadn't Skyped for a couple of months, I ran into all kinds of problems. And I spent a long time researching what the problem was, how to fix it, and I did all that. So I don't suck at technology. That's a story. Hmm. So um, that's just an example. Does that answer the question? I believe it does. I think that's very helpful. I think anyone listening that is on to this stuff that that's going to reaffirm or open their mind to something new. So it's really, really helpful. Do you have time to talk about what's going on now with your voice? Not much, but I can do that quickly. Okay. uh, You can see it hasn't stopped me from quote, expressing myself. What happened was 
about two years ago, there was a kind of a big crisis with my husband's brother, who was his only living relative, and this brother-in-law of mine, he had mental health issues, not intellectual uh, challenges, but I don't like to label people, but in the realm of kind of like schizophrenia or he had always lived on disability and been in and out of mental facilities for most of his life and um, suffered, you know, from addictive tendencies. And, and what we understand now is this was all related to childhood trauma. But for the two years before when I'm talking, the time I'm talking about with my boys, we had been responsible for his health. He'd been hospitalized about 18 times in those two years. He had suffered from a great many medical errors, which, you know, I was enraged about. I had to keep a low profile because this was my husband's job, so to speak. He wanted, my husband wanted to be in charge of his brother's health care and so forth. And I was very supportive and I was close to my brother-in-law, but I wasn't making the decisions. So when it finally came to the point that Jonathan, who was my brother-in-law, was being resuscitated, which is very cruel when you're basically at the end of your life, but Jonathan would not sign a do, do not resuscitate order. And he was capable of making his own decisions. We were all capable of making bad decisions, but those were informed decisions that he made I saw all that suffering. I saw him, you know, surrounded by all that equipment. He was in critical care so many times. And they kept bringing him back. He, he couldn't talk. He couldn't, he hadn't been able to walk or to eat for at least a year. He had a feeding tube. He, could, he couldn't speak. Anyhow, but it was his choice. So my husband and I had some kind of disagreement, I guess, and I about his brother. And I told myself that I was going to, quote, suck it up and shut up. And I didn't use those words then. I only came to those words a few days ago, but that's what I had done as a child. So I did that, and then I, I wasn't, that the voice thing started right then, right then, and I knew. And Jonathan ended up living for about another five months, but he got hospice care, and as soon as he was in a hospice, he lived out the rest of his days quite peacefully. 
Oh, wow. I know. Wow. I know. And he died very peacefully. Wow. And the last thing I did with him was I smiled at him. And in this voice, I told him I loved him. And he smiled back. And it had a happy ending. But it resurrected something for me about my ability to express myself. And it's actually been very helpful for me. And even doing the podcasts is very therapeutic for me because I, I have something important to share. And I think I had important things to share when I was little, too. And most women of my age were not. We were dismissed a great deal. And so the Me Too movement, which we have here in the States, all the stuff about sexual assault, all of this has converged to, and it's helpful for men too, because men don't have to be the big, strong, know-it-all presence. They, they can be what they need to be, and we can be what we need to be, but we're not quite there yet, you know? So I see this condition, which is called spasmodic dysphonia, as a gift in disguise. And if you Google it, they will say no one knows the cause, it's a neurological disorder, there is no cure, blah, 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 blah. But I'm the first one to say many people have recovered, and so will I. But right now, I haven't recovered yet. Yes. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you won't. I guess it's the next, the next lesson, or it's what you're learning now. Do you think that there is a, because of what happened bef before, that there's, there's a time lag and that your healing will come, uh, I guess, with this new symptom. It's, you're just realizing now and then it will probably dissipate. Is that? Yes, I live long enough. No, I'm <laughs> um, I, I think so. I, I think it still is serving me in some way. I'd say every day I have some kind of new epiphany that's related to the condition. And I think it's made me much more skillful as a coach. I have, um, and also, it's just never over until we've taken our last breath. Yeah. People transform sometimes in the final moments of their lives. It's fascinating. I've read a lot of books about all of that, and my hospice experience has been quite uh, illuminating. Wow. So, yeah, I see it as a strange 
and wonderful path. That's how I describe it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, so I, I don't want to, you have to leave, is that right? There's a time restriction? Yeah, and I think probably listeners don't want it to go on forever either. So, you know, we can explore some other things some other time. Absolutely. That'd be great. I just want to say that one thing I picked up from, from you today is that perhaps um, the healing process that you and I and other folks interviewed on this and people that are listening, perhaps the, um, the, the healing process is, is kind of like being in hospice care while, while you're alive and nothing terminal has happened. But, but the process maybe is to live in a hospice sort of way now, not yeah, wait till we're terminal. Well, right. That's the mindset. It, it is. It, it just, it is the healing mindset. It's, uh, I call it uh, acknowledge, allow, and accept. Because the minute we get in that mode, that's the mode where miracles occur. And there are a lot of films out now, like uh, Heal, the documentary. There's The Cure Is. There's The Sacred Science. There, there are a lot of good films that show this, that show this very thing. They show when people strip away all those masks and they're just confronted with their humanity, the body starts to settle down. It, it's not making such a ruckus anymore. Hmm. We just need to accept, even in the simplest way, it's very difficult, as one of my clients says. That's easier said than done. Absolutely, of course it is. Yeah. But just knowing that can be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. for. Like, I would love to continue talking. There's other stuff we could talk about, I'm sure. I feel like you have so much to offer. Um, I think this community is really, really lucky to have you and have, you know, everything you've gone through and, and, you know, where you are in your life now to be able to pass this on with such clarity. I'm, I'm so grateful that you reached out to me, um, and wanted to be on this, um, this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. Um, have a great day, everybody. Thank you for listening and we'll talk or we'll, uh, we'll keep on making episodes. Bye, Elaine. Bye. Hello, everybody. I just I forgot to mention and wanted to say that Elaine is available for coaching and um, offers a really great um, rate. You should check her out on her website. I'm going to list the details below. Um, you know, of course, this isn't like, um, you know, think it's... Uh, necessary for everybody. I mean, it's only if you're comfortable, if you're looking for that. Um, it's just an option. And, uh, of course, no pressure ever. It's just something to look at. And uh, I think she's got a lot to offer. So 
Um, yeah, so I wanted to mention that. Check out the details below. And I also wanted to say, I know I said I was going to change the name of the podcast a while back. And um, I want a different name for it. So this is going to be the name. I'm aiming to change the name of the podcast to Ankylosing Spondylitis Beacon. And um, that's going to start hopefully within the next two months. So I'm going to send out another announcement and maybe put it in the descriptions just so everyone is aware to what to look for. But you can always look for my name. All right, that's it. I wish you all a great day. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please feel free to subscribe to the show. Or if you'd like, write a review. Let me know what you think. And uh, if there's any topics that you'd like covered, please let me know. Favorite episodes. All right. Bye-bye. The text and audio files contained in this program are for information use only. It is not meant to treat, cure, diagnose any medical health condition you may or may not have. For medical advice and treatment, please speak to a medical health professional.